everyone and welcome to another Scots Way podcast and today I'm joined by writer Alison Shaw to talk about her book Ashes and Stones, A Scottish Journey in Search of Witches and Witness. Hello Alison. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Oh it's my pleasure. So what's the story behind Ashes and Stones, you know, why did you want to write this book? I, I, for me it was a very large puzzle that I wanted to solve. Um, I have been living in Scotland for around six years, and one of the first things I was kind of happening upon were these kind of makeshift, um, kind of modest monuments to women or people killed during the witch hunts. And at the time, I didn't know very much about the scope of the hunts. And over time, I started to delve into it, like, what is this, what is this stone? What is this stone? And the more I uncovered in, in terms of looking at Canmore, the archaeological record, as well as the survey of Scottish witchcraft and joining them up, um, I found women's lives that were humanized by small details or even their own language in the confessions. And I just spent years <laughs> exploring um the landscape and their voices so i think it'd be good for listeners to have an idea of when this kind of was the time frame of this and the extent of it as well because that's kind of one of the things that shocked yeah. me was the amount of persecution against women that was going on during this period yeah that's right so it was the late 16th century and into the early 17th century i'm sorry into the early 18th century so it went on for um, many years, many generations. Um, and while um, the estimates of those who were executed and accused is, is a rough estimate because a lot of the paperwork is missing, sometimes the people's names were not even written down. Um, so around over 2,000 were executed and over 4,000 were accused. Um, and so that kind of gives a scope. At the time, Scotland's population was around 800,000. So, uh, you know, in terms of a ratio, this is this is significant. Mm -hmm. um, and the way the hunts would occur, it was not just a single woman led to the pyre, but groups of people rounded up um, and systematically um, the law was applied to them in a very systematic and one might even say modern way. So it wasn't, you know, often it's depicted as peasants with pitchforks or, you know, um, and this was the full force of a, a very modern idea of, of the law applied to human beings. So all of that I didn't know about. And I think a lot of people, maybe especially Americans, think Salem must have been quite really bad right because there's the Arthur Miller play there's so much witch tourism in Salem um, and there actually is a very powerful memorial in Salem but there's only I think around 20 accused versus 4,000 so it's a yeah. very very different scope of atrocity um, in Scotland and it was happening wider in Europe as well. It wasn't that, yes. that, that this was going on kind of Europe wide, but what really interested me was um, the kind of role of 
James the first stroke James the sixth because often we think of the King James Bible as being central to all sorts of things education and you know literacy and all that but it was kind of used as an excuse wasn't it as to how to why to persecute people yeah I mean um it's it's kind of heartbreaking because it's such a gorgeous um the language in the Bible in his translation is absolutely gorgeous and he was a poet but he was also um you know in my layman historian view completely um paranoid about a demonic conspiracy that was not only bringing an end to his rule but to the end of the world and it was his godly um vision to stamp out um what he saw as demonic activity, which really um, was a kind of uh, folklore that was shared by many people, not just people who were demonized as witches, but um, common lore about, um, you know, sacred springs, um, you know, things to keep the fairies appeased <laughs> and stuff were, were um, seen suddenly as uh, tools the devil was using to kind of infiltrate the godly society of King James. And I think a lot of people think, oh, it began with North Berwick. And that really was in terms of psyops, you know, boom, um, the beginning. But it, it there were um, trials before then as well. But that was the most theatrical in right. that the king was there. Um, he was asking Gelly Duncan to play her uh, pipe, whether it was mouth music or pipe song is unclear in the documents, you know, um, but, you know, to perform for him, to perform her witchiness <laughs> um, is, is quite a sobering thing to kind of get your head around that this is how, and then thousands of people died as a result of this kind of staging of a demonic threat, you know. Yeah, and, and it kind of coincides with that idea of Scottish, perhaps Scottish, what would become cities, but larger towns becoming more modern in inverted commas, which pushed against the old folklore, which actually now we are kind of re-embracing and it's there in ballads and it's there in song and all of these things that we now, uh, you know, look back on as part of being a hugely important part of Scottish culture, but I'm guessing that was then seen as something that was radical in the face of a modern world. Yeah, and I think that um, that's the another kind of, I think a lot of um, even neo-pagan um, people, and there is this witch wave going on, a lot of people, including myself, you know, identify as witches. And what does that mean? What, you know, and can we look back at that lore or is it opportunistic? There's lots of ethical questions when mining this history for meaning. Um, but at the same time, there a lot of the confessions are a storehouse of, you know, not only the authentic voices of these ancestors that were silenced, you know, but um, what they believed um, in the land. Like I live really close to Bin Hill um, in Rathen um, and Andromane, I didn't write about, even though 15% of those accused were men, their treatment were so different. I almost feel like it merits 
a second book, another book, but um, Andrew Mann is fascinating in that he had a kind of relationship with the spirit of that hill that he believed was the queen of the fairies. Um, and he also knew how to kind of rededicate land to this, what he thought were the spirits of the land that seems very much like a neo-pagan calling of the corners, you know, north, south, east, and west. And so there's these little kernels, like glimpses of the relationship our, these ancestors had with the land and it was it's poetic it's metaphoric um it's there's some animism and it utter, it captivated me it was fascinating even though they're just little shards of what was exploded at the time so you're looking through almost like shrapnel to find a glimpse of a narrative there well I was going to ask you about how you approached the research to it, because as you say, a lot of it was inspired by finding these memorials and these stones that were there. And I'm guessing a lot of them, you literally had to find them. They weren't being signposted very well or, or at all. Yeah, I mean, often I look, like if there was a place mentioned in the confessions, um, I would try to find it on an OS map and see <laughs> where that would take me. Um, but often, I mean, there were, there, what was one of the most moving discoveries in this, the journey of the book, which was written in the isolation of the pandemic, and so, so it was very lonely work, I felt like I was finding almost like these secret messages that other Scottish people had left for each other. Like, do you remember? I remember, you know, and um, not just current people who maybe will leave a little stone or a flower, but back in history, you know, into the 18th century, there were people who were saying, um, I'm writing these down because I want to clear their names. Or um, this is more than just a curio of witchcraft. This this is very a very troubling history. So there were scholars writing, the, writing those down. And because I didn't have access to the primary sources, I used um, mostly like 19th century historians who were documenting things from the you know, the oak gall ink and the rag paper that were written by the notars um, during interrogation, they transcribed them um, in their authentic language most of the time, sometimes translated into um, more modern Scots, but um, those were the documents that I had to rely on. And it was fascinating to actually be in a dialogue with these, these 19th century, people who wanted us to remember this history so they were writing them down and um I felt that this wasn't something I was discovering it was something that people had diligently kind of said we have to remember this history even though I it's kind of been forgotten there were little clues all, all along left for me yeah that's what it sounds like that there's Blues left for future generations to say, okay, we might not be able to examine this at the moment. It's not the time, but hopefully in the future, people yeah. like yourself will be able to do it. Um, the book itself is kind of part historical investigation, part travelogue, and part memoir, your own stories in it. How do you describe it? How do you think about it as a book? Yeah, I was, 
um, I began it just as kind of a travelogue, um, and then the history got deeper and deeper. And then I was startled to find, um, well, things happened while I was writing the book, like my father died, and um, plus my own struggles with my health and things seemed to be intensely relevant to a book about mourning and outsiderness um, and even um, the way some of the accused were pathologized, um, had, you know, things happening with their bodies that seemed uncannily similar to things that had happened with my own illnesses. So um, I also felt that there is a thread of, of you know, misogyny that I think modern women live with um, this inherited hatred <laughs> that perhaps there is a continuity between what modern women experience and the women who were accused of witchcraft. That's not really a new argument, you know, even suffragists were making this argument. But for me, to kind of drive it home, I felt that to speak from my, my own point of view as a subject, you know, subjectivity in the face of um, this dehumanizing force might be an effective argument. I don't know. I don't know if it is, but that was my hope. Well, I think it, it throughout the book, there's this call or uh, for greater understanding of people who are not like you know the most controlling people which are still the same you know your king james and your king charles if you want you know there's none of you and all of those around them you know there's not, not much different um and that idea that a uh, difference isn't dangerous and that's what they seem to be saying back in the day that these people who they deemed as being different even though they weren't to their you know a uh, um ideas are different enough that they seemed to be dangerous yeah and that's um, going on today. Exactly. The scapegoating of the most vulnerable in society, um, while those in power who, you know, could with a snap of a finger make things better or whatever, you know, def deflecting the woes of the larger culture on the most powerless. I mean, this is something, as you say, you know, it's happening um right now and so um it seemed re very relevant to examine this moment in history and even the the lens through which there's there's a kind of a, a consensus reality that oh everyone was just backward it was it was an unenlightened time and we're different now and i feel like we're not um and that's I think it's really important to kind of not flatter ourselves in thinking that this something like this couldn't happen again. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the approach of writing the book, you say that a lot of it was written during lockdown, but had you the travelogue side of it you'd already done, I presume? A lot of I often I would go I would return to sites over and over. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, to my delight, I would see them change like the spot memorial when I had, had initially gone there was an old mistake like well 
if not mistaken, quite confusing sign that had then been replaced maybe under the cover of darkness or um, by local historians and uh, Alison Whiteman and local children made a kind of vibrant, replaced the old confusing memorial with one um, that was quite sculptural and had insects and plants of the hedgerow surrounding the memorial and and kind words about the souls of the accused. Um, and so to, sometimes when I would return to a site, I would see it changed, you know, or even the um, Aberdeen, the beautiful mural in Aberdeen has very recently been vandalized. So sometimes the, the, the memorials live on in a new way that's incredibly uh, relevant and these grassroots movements caring for these monuments and reinventing them so that they're more humane. Um, but then there's also some that are neglected or quite vulnerable to vandalism. And so I would return over and over to these places. And it's true, it, went, it began before the pandemic, but then continued on through, I would revisit <laughs> the places to see if they had changed. Because that's what, one of the things I wanted to ask you was about the how not just maybe the memorials had changed, but the way people think about them, because some of them seem to have been almost which trails, you know, come and follow, this is what happened here and this, and, you know, with a slightly salacious and kind of maybe, you know, uh, the way that people would, you know, do the tours of the famous in Hollywood or something like that. Yeah. And it seems to me that maybe they are changing now and people are showing more respect and they're being marked as proper memorials and uh, to, to, to kind of think about what happened there and the people that, you know, met their end there. Yeah, and certainly I think this is a real grassroots movement that um, communities have come together most recently in Peebles. Um, but the Kirkwall Memori Memorial in Orkney is incredible in that it was a real um, collaboration, not only between the archivists like Lucy Given, um, but the musicians in Orkney, um, one of the potters, <laughs> the writers, so it was a real outpouring of creative energy that sought to humanize the women. Um, and I, I feel like that, I look at what happened in Orkney as kind of like, wow. I mean, you also have individuals like the Cashleys in Forfar creating a, a beautiful memorial, just the two, two of them doing that. Um, and, in a lot of ways, these when communities come together in this way, they make it seems like it's a more effective message than a heritage endeavor that wants it to be a tourist stop or perhaps a money making uh, scheme. And that excites me that communities are taking this into their own hands yeah. uh, and not leaving it up to maybe more. Um, cultural bodies uh, to determine what they should say. And what's interesting, just with what you've said so far already, is it shows you the extent across Scotland that this was happening, because you've mentioned Peebles and North Berwick and Aberdeen and Orkney, and we've not even been to Ayrshire yet, and, you know, <laughs> Rabbi Burns country and all of that stuff. So this really was 
right across the country that this was happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's lots of rich arguments. There, there's a lot of historical scholarship, which I'm not um, an academic, but why perhaps the highlands were spared, um, which I don't really go into in the book. And there is one highland location. Um, but on the whole, this was really widespread and especially concentrated in um, seaside communities, uh, especially um, there is conjecture about, you know, just death at sea being such a real thing for anyone. I mean, I live in Banff and so everyone here knows someone who who lost someone to the sea, you know, it's, even now. So yeah. um, that was part of the lore, <laughs> like don't have a woman, woman on the ship and even weather working, which might've been a way relatively harmless for a marginalized person to make a bit of coin <laughs> to sell good wins you know suddenly became the enemy of the king himself right yeah. so um there was a lot of concentration of hunting in seaside communities it's that thing almost that we're beginning to understand a little bit more in terms of science and, and things and the things we don't understand we have to find someone to blame so here's this other group that we're going to to, to blame yeah um let's go back into you bringing in some of your own experiences um was that difficult to do was that to kind of look over things that uh, you'd happened to yourself yeah i think it was probably one of the hardest things i've i've done i mean besides surviving some of those things to actually make the decision that, well, reading a lot of the um, more horrific elements of this history were triggering to me. <laughs> and while I'm not afraid to be triggered, it seems it seemed an opportunity. Um, but I realized that if I were to write about it, it would have to be with a light hand. It would have to be with a humility. Um, to contextualize my own journey um, with the more horrific uh, history, the the kind of like the lynching in Pittenweem and things like that, um, there's no comparison. And yet, I I felt a link to what they had uh, experienced um, on the run, <laughs> being hunted. And you think you were always going to bring them in, or was that maybe a result of the time spent writing in lockdown and reflection and all of those things? I, that's such a wonderful, perceptive question. I hadn't even thought about it till you said that. That I, I do think that in isolation, right? You know, sometimes not even being able. I would have to. I wanted to travel to a location. I would have to make sure that I could go uh, right. because of the zoning. Um, and not seeing anyone, you know, for um, in, unless they were the size of a postage stamp like we are, <laughs> um, you know, not seeing any anyone um, for years. It's so you're alone with um, your past. Yeah. Um, and I think that became a really a, re a really immediate reckoning. 
um, in that sp space of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And the subtitle of the book is In Search of Witches and Witness. And witness seems to be central to the book, that kind of importance of acknowledgement, um, remembrance and giving voice to those who were persecuted. Do you think that is happening now? Is there still much to do? I think there's so much to do. <laughs> I, it is happening. Yeah. It, and it is happening. And there's even within the government and Nicola Sturgeon's historic apology um, means so much to um, not only recognizing this history, but women who have survived violence, either at the hands of the state or people they knew or strangers. And I think that um, it's just beginning, but there's also a competing thread of the this witch wave is like a cash cow. <laughs> So these are at odds, <laughs> the, yeah. you know, the wanting to memorialize and, and give dignity to um, the dead. And then let's make some money, <laughs> which is our hot, let's make some money. Um, and because this is, there's some real tension there. Um, there needs to be so much more discussion before the you know kind of profit driven narrative wins out <laughs> it is, um, isn't it? it's difficult um because it seems that that always comes in at some point that someone's looking for a way to how can we make money out of this yeah. and i was thinking about over the last couple of years and particularly the year coming people talk about witch fiction and in inverted commas and there's going to be so many books of yeah. fiction being written now some of them i'm sure will be fantastic but you know some of them may may not be so so good um what's your thoughts on that side of things well it's i mean i think one of the um downsides of writing this history is i can no longer indulge <laughs> in these fantasies, which I think at one time I really enjoyed witchy books and witchy things. It was fun, you know, and the aesthetic was really um, fascinating. And it's, I can no longer, um, it's too, it's, there's too much dissonance where I'm like, that's not how it was. That's not what it is. Or, um, so I don't know if I will come around to that. Um, and, I guess what one nuts and bolts thing is I would love to see an end to this indulging in the pyre, <laughs> really loving this moment of screaming hysteria around the fire where the woman is shouting some, something or whatever, you know, and just that, that cliched trope, it's just, um, it's so toxic. <laughs> and so um, it's relied upon as a, dramatic hinge in, in so much witch fiction. And I think um, it really does a disservice. Well, in Scotland, women were not burnt alive. Mm -hmm. They were strangled and then burned. Um, now that didn't always work out, <laughs> but you know, I think, or sometimes this idea that women were hung, that that happened in a different context and mostly in England, but this kind of fetishizing the moment of execution, yeah. you know, is really um, sickening. <laughs> I think just even, you know, the, the facts, as you set them out, that what happened in Scotland was this, people were hung and then burned. 
that's so brutal and so straight and it's in the book a lot and I think that's one of the great things it does it's like no you can't mess around with what happened here you know that and it also made me think about the the way certainly I was brought up with the idea of witches which were you know it, caricature you know you, it, Halloween witch skeleton you know whatever it might yeah. That was kind of it. And everyone knew what it was, going back to the Wizard of Oz and all of those kind of ideals, um, which, as you say, really in the modern day aren't helpful at all. Yeah. I mean, it's there might be some truth to it. Like, um, you know, the mole, the mole on her face is the is the mark that was pricked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. It, that was this, you know, just a little freckle that, you know, was this demonic place that was actually, you know, punctured, um, you know, through torture or the bruises on her face were green from, you know, old bruises changing the color of her face. So this caricature actually has marks of torture in it. I mean, when we think about it that way, it be becomes really disturbing that this is kind of ushered out um, at Halloween for entertainment for children. Um, and this is the story we're telling children about this history. Um, it seems so wrong to me um, that we're framing these helpless women executed by the state as monsters, you know. And something, um, when you say executed by the state, and was it state or was there, I mean, who exactly were doing the hunting put it that way was it the church was it the state was it a mixture of both I, I mean it was uh landowners and the church working together I think um certainly around the reign of King James there were people wanting to curry favor so if we can serve up a witch <laughs> like if we can look like good witch hunters then he'll know we're up for the godly society so it was a power play. Um, but really, the men that sat in judgment were landed um, nobles, and things went down in the church court unless they were in Edinburgh, which was actually um, the government. And you know what um, struck me about the book right through it was, and again, happening today, right today is the persecution of groups and as you say offering one up as often saying look at this person this then goes to all of these people who we have grouped together and that just leads to greater persecution across the board and it's you know as I say it's happening right now in, in all sorts of ways and did you find that uh, the more you, you did the research into the past that you were seeing these parallels with today? Yeah and I think Certainly, um, the a, the lot of I spent a lot of time looking at what the women said and kind of trying to read a moment <laughs> that seemed authentic rather than words that were being fed to her, yeah. but something of her own life. But there's been lots of amazing scholarship from Julian Goodair and others that actually really examined witch hunters, and I wasn't interested in that. Mm -hmm. But certainly you have profiles of like Weinstein-like mm -hmm. creeps um, and um, men who were really using these women cynically as like kind of pawns 
in a play to gain more power, uh, gain more political favor, or they were religious zealots um, who really believed they were, I mean, and this, I'm not excusing it by saying this, but believed that they had to stamp out Satan in their midst. And that meant Satan lived in these older women, help the poorest, most elderly women in their congregation were the embodiment of Satan, which is, you know, really, really strange. Um, but it's that idea of, well, who do you go for? You go for the weakest in society because that's the easiest thing to do. And unfortunately, again, that's something that we can see today. And you mentioned Nicola Sturgeon's formal apology to those accused of witchcraft during the witch hunts. I think it was in 2022, so recent apology. You said that was an important thing. Why was it such an important uh, thing for her to do? Well, I think... Um... One aspect that was important to me is that it showed Scotland as a country that's willing to look at its own past and say, we are now going forward. We are looking at this clearly. We're not going to ignore it, right? And we are going to invent a modern Scotland where this never happens again, you know? But also it meant a lot. It was a risk, right? I mean, you could even see people ridiculing her. You know, what is this Monty Python? And like all this, you know, her genuine apology that was so articulate. And it was, she really honed in on the, that this happened because of misogyny. And so all women who are survivors, and there's so many of us who have survived violence, heard that, yeah. heard that and felt, I mean, this is a cliche to say, but felt seen, yeah. right? Um, and so no matter how she was ridiculed, the fact that she had the courage to do this had political ramifications in terms of Scottish identity for me, national identity, but also personally as someone who has survived misogynist violence, um, it felt necessary. And uh, talking about Scotland, you travelled around Scotland. Were you surprised by anything? Did it change your perception of the place and its people when you were going so far and wide? Yeah, I think there was often quite a bit of dissonance, like because Scotland is so beautiful and it's, I'm an immigrant, but it's home to me. It's like my soul sings here and Yet here I was going to places that were confounding. And often people were telling me stories that were like really crazy, you know, sensationalist versions of whatever, you know, like kind of folk, folky that were really disturbing. <laughs> um, or people had no idea. And I, that's what was really shocking when I was kind of telling people, oh, I'm doing this. They're like, what? But Salem was much worse, right? <laughs> or people didn't know about this history. And, and that that shocked me because I thought, well, me, I, I just don't know because I didn't go to school here. You know, I didn't learn about Scottish history till I moved here and I did, you know, just read everything I could. But it shocked me to know that this wasn't taught in school. So people, Scottish people didn't know about it. As someone who went through that uh, school system, 
yeah, we didn't learn much about Scottish history at all. It was all kind of British history and, and so much of it that I only learnt when I went to university to study literature, you know, and then suddenly all this other stuff came through. So I, it doesn't surprise me that you that's the kind of reaction that you might have. And it also doesn't surprise me that you may get people giving you kind of lurid stories because they probably think that's what you want to hear because it goes back to that idea of um, which trails rather than anything else and saying, oh, guess what happened here? And then they yeah. up how bad it was by however much. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and so, um, but I, I do think when I would find these like little stones or a more modern plaque, it was a startling like affirmation, you know, like I felt even in my solitary kind of that I am an immigrant in a rural area and um, during lockdowns, you know, so not seeing anyone, there were these moments of like community, even though no one was around, I felt that I was part of a group of Scottish people who were looking at this history in the same way, bearing witness to it. Um, it was quite moving and powerful to and see. If, sorry, I was going to say, if people are listening to this and would like to find and take a look at these places for themselves. Are they quite easy to, to discover? Is there online places that they can go and, and discover them? I mean, certainly my book is a good guide. Yeah, but um, I think actually um, one thing people can do is consult. Now this wouldn't lead to monuments, but it would lead to their kind of ancestral neighbors there's a there's a map that's part of the survey of Scottish witchcraft um, put out by the University of Edinburgh, and it's an interactive map. So you can look at the part of Scotland that you live in or you're from, and zero in on it. And as the map expands, there are little figures that are actually taken from news from Scotland, the pamphlet. All so right. little figures that multiply, and each one has a name. And when you click on her, her or him, it will take you to, you know, their trial date, any details that are known, and the place like the Privy Council records or whatever, where you could refer to find even more information. This was really helpful for me in writing the book. But people could also use it like if they wanted to do their own memorial locally, they could find the names. Yeah. Not all of them, but certainly what's been uncovered to date um that would be it's an incredible starting point um to find local um information and i should say at the start of your book there is a fantastic map yeah. people can see on the video version which <laughs> does have the names and the, the places where people can go to see and actually i'm just looking at it and it is interesting that it's more often than not east coast that yeah. the, the places are and uh, Certainly, I. it's not an exhaustive uh, no. list. I mean, I was realizing as the book was being finalized that more memorials were being built. I was discovering more Carlin stones, right? I mean, it, it, um, it's, it's inf potentially infinite. <laughs> well, that leads me on to my next question was, do you feel this investigation has ended for you or do you think this is just the beginning? 
it I mean it feels like the beginning I am totally fascinated actually by Orkney and Shetland <laughs> and how different the witch trials were there and how much Nor uh, Norse folklore um it has a very different character. So instead of fairy lore, you know, you have trolls and troll cats and troll women. And, um, you know, so, and it's quite vibrant. And even the kind of Norwegian law being kind of butting up against Scottish law right at this time right. is really fascinating stuff. <laughs> oh, that's that sounds amazing. Because that you know, the, the the art and the literature from that part of the world is often very different, you know, um, to, to what's going on elsewhere. Yeah. Alison, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really love the book. It's a terrific read. And it's been so nice to be able to talk to you about it. It's been just wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> and we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Yeah.